0: Amen. We both praise God for the end of row. Uh, The prayers of many have gone up for a long time. We recognize that the battle is not over. That all the uh, human hearts in America did not change overnight. And that there is much work to be done. But um, that's a great song. Great song for a morning like this morning. So why don't I just thank our worship team who just so wonderful week in and week out. What a, crazy, what a crazy thing that you think mothers shouldn't kill their babies. What a radical idea. What a bunch of extremists you are. According to our mayor. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. The title of the message is Unity and, F- Unity and Freedom of Conscience on Baptism. Unity and Freedom of Conscience on baptism and the devil doesn't want me to preach this message. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. Would you stand with me as we read verses 1 through 6? Remember the all of the great and beautiful graces of salvation. Of unity, of there being no wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, meaning the gospel is going to go among the nations, and the church will be built in chapter three, and reveal reveal the manifold wisdom of God in verse ten to all the authorities and rulers in the heavenly places. God will show His triumph over them through His church, and then the Apostle Paul prays that we would know the love of God, and so we have all of these incredible graces in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And the Apostle Paul doesn't want the, the, all of those graces wasted. And this is where we turn in chapter 4. This is then how we live in light of these graces. And these are the point. The point isn't to sit and just think about chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians. The point is to actually do it. And so, verse 1, I therefore One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we pray that You would help us to heed Your words given by Your Spirit through the Apostle Paul to us. To heed them as commands. To heed them with urgency in our hearts and lives. And um, to take seriously What it means to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To let Your commands sit on us with weight. Weight as if these are Your very words that we must believe and we must obey in order to glorify Your name. In order to display Your own nature as three in one. We pray even so to this end on baptism. Thank You, Father, for Your kindness and for the gift of Christ our Lord, who is our one Lord, and we thank You that we share in Him. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. i want to start with this. One of your temptations is to think that I just say things that nobody's ever said before. That's one of your temptations. You need to recognize that that's a temptation. It's not a, it's not a good thing to think that. But it is a temptation. And so, I want to read this to you from Abraham Kuyper. He gave us these wise words from 1920. So, uh, and you'll hear, they are ever more true 100 years later than they were in 1920. Quote, This false illusion under which believers live is nowhere more evident than in their internal quarrels and bickering and the tone in which such quarrels are often conducted. It almost never happens or can happen that everyone agrees on everything. Right? Was there ever a truth more true? (laughs) Our individualism is too strong to allow this. But if you look at the questions and issues over which believers have battled each other during the last 50 years, so in his context, he's, he's like 1870 to 1920, not the last 50 years to us, well, it would be even more true. But if you look at the questions and issues over which believers have battled each other during the last 50 years and note the bitterness with which that battle over these issues, um, which to a degree, continues even today, has been fought, the bitterness, how the bitterness has been fought, then you can hardly escape the impression that you are watching a mighty enemy coming out to lay siege to and occupy a small fortress. Meanwhile, the leaders and soldiers in that fortress, meaning the saints in the church, are not at all busy preparing a solid defense but are instead nearly at each other's throats over the decision of whether the barracks facade should be constructed in Renaissance or Gothic style. We do not, of course, claim that such issues are in themselves unimportant. Nor do we deny that in times of peace, such matters can be weighty and significant. However. One cannot remain silent about the fact that when the enemy is at the gate, the importance of these questions fades away. People who in such times do not first of all do everything to prepare themselves to defend the fortress against the enemy have not understood either their duty or their calling. There are many today who do not do this, but continue exhausting their strength in settling issues of second, third, or fourth importance. Baptism being of second importance. Third or even fourth importance. And it is all too clear that their eyes have been blinded to the threatening danger. They do not see it. For that reason, they imagine that they can afford a luxury that can be ours only in days of total peace. <clears throat> baptism is a secondary issue. You know, the way that I learned it to think about baptism years ago as it regards a particular local church is you have the Gospel of First Importance, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and then uh, some things that follow that, like Baptism, because it's closely connected to the gospel and our understanding of salvation, but it is not the gospel. And so, um, on secondary issues, I was always taught that uh, churches just have to divide over them. They just have to divide over them. And on things like baptism, you just have to divide over it. And um, and so everyone just assumes, well, you just have to divide over it, because everybody says you have to divide over it. You hear it enough times. You know, you just think, okay, we have to divide over it. And yet, here in 1920, 1920, you have Abraham Kuyper saying that um, secondary issues, secondary issues, in a time that's not does not have the luxury of peace. Now, are we in a time that has? More luxury of peace a hundred years later, or at a time that has less luxury of peace a hundred years later? Way less. Way less luxury. And so what he says is the, importance is the importance in his argument would be raised to an even higher standard that on matters of secondary importance, we have less luxury To sit and quarrel about Renaissance or Gothic style. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, we just read the Apostle Paul. We read in verse 1 that he is a prisoner of the Lord. Did the Apostle Paul have the luxury of peacetime? Oh, here we see his suffering for his apostleship and his faithfulness. It's also, I believe, a statement of his authority as an apostle. He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's imprisoned. Maybe there's something we could learn from the Apostle Paul here when he says what he says following that he's a prisoner of the Lord and something that we could learn about the nature of how we have to function when things aren't so peaceful. And I just got to say, it is shocking. It's just shocking how little weight we give to this passage of Scripture today. It's shocking. It's shocking how quickly any conversation about obedience to God in regards to unity is met with faithlessness and fear. It's shocking to me when God requires these truths that we're digging into, it's shocking to me how quickly we dismiss the Apostle Paul's commands of the Lord to unity. And we do two things. We do two things wrong. One is, we just run to the thinking of Unitarians that when the Apostle Paul says this, it's just unity unity about everything whatsoever. And that's one side of the coin. And then um, the other side of the coin is that there's no unity at all. And we function like those are the two options. And if we're on the no unity at all side, then everything is a matter of division to us because we're the staunch supporters of the truth. Both are faithless. Both are unbelieving. Both are disobedient. And somewhere, long before you hit the periphery, it's faithless and disobedient and unbelieving. And we fail to see how quickly resentment and hatred reside in us towards our beloved brothers and sisters. Calvin said, how should we dread every kind of animosity? Not as a question, as a statement. How should we dread every kind of animosity? towards God's saints. Yet, we think that if we are full of animosity, then we're always on the side of truth. Shame on us. Are you ever suspicious of yourself? Are you? Are you ever suspicious of yourself, the way you think, the motives behind what you do? Are you ever suspicious of your own heart and the directions it may take you? Are you ever suspicious that your animosity isn't godly? Are you ever suspicious that your thinking that everything should be unity isn't godly? Either way, you must let the command of God right here in Ephesians sit on you. And you must feel its weight and feel its weight over you. And you must obey it. And the Apostle Paul knows how hard it's going to be for the saints in Ephesus to obey it. How are you going to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, the Apostle Paul knows that you actually don't end up with unity by uh, talking about unity like a broken record. And so where does he start? He starts where he must start. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been In other words, your life is to measure the is to is to match all of the graces given to you. All of the graces of Ephesians 1 through 3, your life is to be worthy of them. Walk worthy of them. And then he gives specifics about what he means to walk worthy of them. And this is where everything starts if there would ever be unity. Calling to which you have been called with all humility. With all humility. Without humility there is no real unity. There just isn't. You know. Pride is at the heart of so much strife. The mother of all virtue is required if there would ever be what the Apostle Paul is commanding us here, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, if any of these would ever be the case, if being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How are you going to have unity? How are you going to have a heart that's actually eager? Endeavoring. Calvin translates it. Endeavoring. eager to maintain, or endeavoring. How are you ever going to have that if you don't have humility? If everything's about whether you're right or not. If everything's about whether you're on the winning side or not. If everything's about whether you find yourself on the right side of history, If the only thing you can think about the brethren who disagree with you is their wrongness, how are you ever going to do anything that resembles this text? And what you have to realize is when you fail to be obedient to this text, you are wasting the graces of Ephesians 1-3. through 3. The way forward with baptism in our church will require humility. It will require humility. You will have to prefer others before yourself, and you will have to think far more lowly thoughts of yourself, and you will have to think far more highly of what God has done for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Bearing with one another in... Or humility and gentleness with patience. Those are two words that have not described the nature of how we have handled baptism for the last 400 years. Bearing with one another in love. Rather than bearing with one another in love, what we have done is what I've said in previous messages in this series. We have formally or informally excommunicated brothers and sisters in Christ from His church. Bearing with one another in love. Wouldn't you like to have a problem free church family? Maybe we could just do what most churches do and just organize ourselves in such a way that everything's plastic. And the more plastic and fake it is, the less ever bearing with one another we really have to do. And we can just create a facade of actually having real relationships. And we can just give ourselves to an outward peace and conformity. And I, we can make that our whole shtick. Because then you don't have to bear with anything. Except like the one awkward guy that, you know? You know how churches function like this? Why does the Bible say bearing with one another in love? But it's because you're quick to constantly cut people off because you don't love them. Bearing with one another in love implies an endless amount of problems and difficulties and sins and disagreements of view. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. Stay a while. Bearing with one another in love. And for crying out loud. Don't you realize that everyone else is having to bear with you in love? oh, I'm God's gift to the rest of the saints. You have already failed miserably. So let's just be honest about the fact that those who disagree on baptism, who are paedo-baptists and those who are credo-baptists, will actually need to bear with one another in love. if there's a way forward, we will need to bear with one another in love. Because we will be bearing with someone's disagreement on what the Word of God teaches. In both directions. Both have strong convictions. Both believe their position to be the teaching of the Word of God. Both feel as if the other is wrong. Both would be glad to have someone come to their side of understanding Scripture. Both will require bearing with one another in love. Calvin said, where, ever, where love is strong and prevalent, we shall perform many acts of mutual forbearance. So where there's love for one another, we will perform many acts of mutual forbearance. In other words, our love really is the precursor to our bearing with one another. You bear with someone because you love them. What else would motivate you to do it? What else would overcome your sinful, selfish, all kinds of things? What else would do it other than your love for someone? First Peter 4 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Sins. If love can cover a multitude of sins, can it not also cover credible orthodox disagreements within the same church family? You realize there's a difference between sin and a credible orthodox position on what scripture teaches we just have lived in loveless decades in our culture and in the church 1 Corinthians 13:7 says love bears all things It is true that in much of the division over baptism for 400 years now, there has been a lot of persecution of one another, mockery of one another, slander of one another, malice of one another, lovelessness between brethren. And that on a point that was really, in in fact, only disagreeable on not baptism but a nuance of baptism, meaning baptisms in mode. A smaller category than baptism itself. And the Apostle Paul commands us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what I've been doing throughout this series of sermons on baptism. I have been presenting to you a case in eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You are commanded by God to do this. The words of Scripture are always fascinating to me. I always want to think, why does it say, why does Scripture say what it says? Why the word eager? Because doesn't the word eager just obliterate your fleshly tendency to divide? It just obliterates it because it forces you to go in exactly the opposite direction. And then, not just eager, but eager to maintain, meaning that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is easily lost. And we have to keep working at it. God commands you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If it was never hard and never required work in Christ's church, if it never required your humility and it never required your priorities and how you think about life and what you value, being reoriented... By way of love. Then Scripture wouldn't have to say to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It doesn't just happen. It's easily lost. Every person here is responsible to obey God on this point. Your heart isn't right before God if you're not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Don't think your heart is right before God if that's not the case. You must work at it. Some of the church's history on baptism is very schismatic. Schismatic attitudes, schismatic words, mischaracterization of one another, exaggeration of the wrongness of the other side of the argument on baptism. And not just on baptism, again, mind you, but on the timing and mode of baptism. And so in the ways that we're guilty of this, we must repent. We must repent. Schism is dividing God's people where it's not necessary to divide God's people. however division is also necessary for instance we would divide from those who do baptism after a profession of faith by immersion if they believe that baptism is how you receive the holy spirit that would be baptismal regeneration that's a no-go land but the timing and the mode are the same but the meaning is altogether different. We would divide over pedo communion, infant and small children communion, because of its rejection of warnings that are clear in 1 Corinthians 11. We would divide over that. Now, every division doesn't have to carry the same weight either. Every division doesn't require a loss of charity. I'll tell you, there are a lot of brothers and sisters who hold the paedo-communion who I will be glad to be in the trench with when it really hits the fan in our country. The bond of peace. The goal here is to make baptism a... Here's how I think you need to think about this. The the goal here is to make baptism just a non-issue in regards to division. It just becomes a non-issue in regards to division. The goal is not to prefer one to another, lest we show partiality and only give a nod to unity. The goal is not to give a nod to unity. The goal is for it to actually just be a non issue as regards division in our church. A non issue that, in other words, is um, held together because of the bonds that we have of peace. So, what options do we have? Well, nothing changes. Probably not a good option, or I wouldn't be spinning myself for this, for your sake, for the last five Sundays. Another option, we receive baptized infants into full membership. This would be better. Honestly, I would applaud more credo-baptist churches being willing to do this in our country, even if that's as far as they went, would be a good step of charity and unity. This would be better than most churches are willing to consider. But it doesn't go far enough because when they have kids, what do you do with them? So great, they're welcomed in the membership of their church and their kids are still aliens. It doesn't go far enough. How do they live according to their convictions? They never can. They're just allowed to participate at some level in the life of the church. Well, here's another option. We send families who are Pedo baptists elsewhere to get their infants baptized. Sounds nice. We get to kind of like wash our hands of it, you know. I'm innocent of all things, so they can go do baptisms in a dark alley by a pastor who isn't qualified, who's operating out of order for his own, from his own book of denominational principles. Not necessarily an over exaggeration. But is that the best we can do? We could do a separate baptism service that the whole church is invited to for infant baptisms. That removes the pressure from Sunday morning a bit, but at the same time, why don't believers' baptisms get the special kind of treatment? You see how delicate this is? The piece is delicate, and I just want you to know we're committed to dealing with how delicate it is for both sides. We're committed to thinking carefully and practically about how to have no second-class citizens in Christ's church. So that doesn't seem like a likely option. We could have separate baptism services from Sunday mornings for a period of time, for both infant baptisms and believers' baptisms, just to remove the pressure off of the Sunday morning worship gathering in regards to baptism for a while, but we don't have a building. And it's just practically not that easy to do that. We could conduct both infant baptisms and believers' baptisms during our worship gatherings as normal. In this case, since I am a reformed Baptist, we would need someone who is a pedo-baptist to come and do the infant baptisms for us. And that's not an ideal solution either. Because then those who are persuaded of pedo-baptism could easily feel like second-class citizens because their pastor isn't doing the baptisms of their children. But, it would be someone that our church loves and trusts and shares fellowship with. It's not like we're called. We would be if we went this route. It's not like we'd be calling a hotline. It's called a Pado Baptist Hotline for nine nine 99 a month. We rent a Pado Baptist baptizer. <laughs> you know, someone we love and and trust and and who we share fellowship with as a church. I will tell you, our pastors and elders spend a lot of time on this. We've spent a lot of time on this. Um, Really, for years, but we're thinking that this is—we're thinking this is really the only way forward that accomplishes the goal of unity and freedom of conscience across baptism lines, without one side taking the other hand and just tolerating the other. And we don't want that. So we're continuing to talk and pray about it, and would still love to hear further from you if you have any questions. Uh, about this but that's what we're thinking and and we won't decide in July while Joel is gone but um, our meeting in August I think we'll probably be ready to have some decisions made and some considerations for the church forward I'll have more from that in just a second now I want to deal with some elephants in the room on this you realize there's a bunch of elephants in the room elephants everywhere First question, is there a big fight in our church over this? I was talking with one of my sons last night about how special God's grace is in this church family that we can seriously consider something like this and think about it for five Sundays. That we can think about it and we can talk about it and we can love one another through it about something even like baptism. And there isn't any serious fighting for this at all. There's some debate. You know what? I wouldn't be happy with us if there was no debate. You're not sitting in the pews to be drones. I wouldn't be happy if there was no debate about it. So yeah, some good debate. And every time, like we just think debate is fighting now. We've gotten so far away from masculinity and the way men fight and the, the way debate should happen and has happened for thousands of years in the church until today that any debate is just considered like, oh, I don't go there, you know? But it's good. Sometimes we also wonder, well, maybe I'm not in the middle of a church fight, but I wonder if there's one over there somewhere that I can't see and I'm not aware of. And I just want you to know, there's not. There's not. Our church is largely at peace and considering this. It's really amazingly peaceful. And I was just talking to my son last night about how proud of our church I am in that regard. Here's an elephant in the room Is this the beginning of many compromises our church will make about the truth? You know, this, and I'll just tell you, this one I have a harder time understanding. I get the slippery slope argument. Whereas the slippery slope argument is the most Baptistic Baptist thing ever. It's just baffling to me that accepting a credible, orthodox, historical position on the timing and mode of baptism somehow is a slippery slope. like honoring your brethren committed to the to the truth standing before their own master is a slippery slope now if you've been here for any time at all just think just think with me for a second if you've been here at any time, for any time at all is your heart more per- persuaded of truths with stronger convictions about what God's Word teaches and says and how we believe it, or less? Have I showed you any pattern of compromise on God's truth? Is there any track record of me backing down from what God's Word says? Have I not pushed you further into the nature of the truth of God's word and how we live as Christians according to it? So, any thought that that's the case is just fallacious. It's just fallacious. Everything that I have led this church towards is more godliness, more accord in more accord with the truth, as understood, down through history. And all of our young men are stronger because of the direction that we've been headed as a church. Here's an elephant in the room. Is this just because is this just the beginning of our church becoming Pado baptist you see, like, the question's a bit of a misnomer. I understand the fear, but the question's a bit of a misnomer because what I'm arguing for is it becomes a non-issue in regards to, baptism becomes a non-issue in regards to division. That people can live by the freedom of their conscience. So listen to me when I say that to you. Are you listening to me? Because you fear something doesn't make it true. You tracking with that? Because you fear something, it doesn't make it true. So hear what I am saying. What I am saying is freedom of conscience on baptism and that we don't have to divide over that. Which means... That the saints within our church have, would have freedom to live according to their conviction of what Scripture teaches on baptism, and it's a non-issue. So is this the, just the beginning of our church becoming Pado baptist The answer is no. Because we're going to have credo-baptists and we're going to have paedo-baptists a non-issue. So, which kind of leads to another question. Are we a credo-baptist church that's just making room for pedo-baptists or are we something else? Well, I would say this. We're a Baptist church in the sense that we're mostly credo-baptists. But the goal is not to make our identity around baptism. We are a church of Jesus Christ. That's our identity. The goal is not to make our identity around baptism. That's been a big part of the whole problem, and not just baptism, but our identity around timing and motive baptism, more specifically. And because we've made our identity about it, this has led to a lot of the schismatic attitudes and ways we've handled it, and the lack of charity, because our identity is found in our timing and mode of baptism. Now, for those of you who think, like, why should we even be being, ha- for some of you, you ha- you'll think, why do we even need to have a discussion like this? It's just so obvious to me that we should just pursue unity. And I would say, be very careful if that's you. Be very careful. The reason you need to be very careful is because you're, you have to be careful that you don't just easily do this because you don't understand the importance of issues at hand, which will take you down a path very easily of Unitarianism, of unity about everything. So be very careful. We need to find our identity in the truths of our theology coming from the Reformation. So we're a church, a Reformed church. Springing out of the doctrines of the Reformation that's seeking to find a way to give freedom of conscience across baptism lines and to live in peace together. Now, what if someone wants to change their position on baptism? So let's just be honest. It's inevitable. We will both attract some Pado Baptists and also some that will change their position with time. It just will happen. And the goal can't be, the goal can't be, well, I've got a Baptist pastor, and so we're gonna win this, we're gonna win the side because the pastor's on my side. That is not the point. You'll have me on your side in terms of helping our young men be careful not to just jump ship on Credo baptism to pedo baptism because they're youthful and they just want to jump on board with a newfangled idea and they're rejecting their pastor. And all kinds of other reasons why young men jump ship on theological points and jump on bandwagons and are attracted to big movements. And, you know, for a while, I'll ensure that that's not what's happening, that we actually are slow, that men consider the truth carefully. But the fact of the matter is, is... At some point, the issue has to be not involve me. Because it's a non-issue. It's a non-issue. A lot of our young men just watch guys on YouTube because they want to find somebody who's just going to help them get everything right. Right? because they're all afraid you're all afraid of failing you're all afraid of getting something wrong and so you are constantly searching trying to find the guy who's going to help you get everything right so that you're not a failure i have a news flash for you you're going to be a theological failure in many many ways Just like, you're going to be a failure as a dad. And you're going to be a failure as a mom. Can we just start being honest about that in Jesus' church for crying out loud? After all, I thought we needed Jesus to die for us. And I thought we needed God's grace to save us. Can we just stop acting like the doctrine of sin isn't something in Scripture? You're going to fail. You're gonna fail way more than you think you're gonna fail, and you're gonna fail way more than you ever realized you did. Could we just actually believe the doctrine of sin, and that it actually is us? And in see, because that's the foundation. Then we can entrust ourselves to the grace of God. Then we can entrust ourselves to the grace of God. I had someone criticizing me one time, left our church over this. They said, I don't think you I don't think you can edify the church by telling them they're going to be a failure, and I say, I don't know how anybody can be saved if you don't tell them they're going to failure. Do you know what happens if you don't realize that you're going to fail endlessly? You're either going to pride yourself when you think you're not failing, which is a failure already, or you're just going to despair endlessly over your failures because you don't know how to look at the cross of Christ and confess your sin and repent and have your conscience cleansed and be welcomed and accepted by the Lord Jesus again and again and again with His great patience to you. And so all you will do is despair. And that's a failure too. Because you didn't go to Jesus. What am I even talking about? Oh, the point being, some of you will just try to figure this out by watching somebody on YouTube and you think it's because uh, they're going to save you from getting anything wrong and from failing theologically. Like my assumption is you're gonna fail a lot. Why do you gotta try to who are you trying to prove something to? You think God needs you to prove yourself to him theologically by finding the right guy who doesn't get anything wrong? Who will stand before Jesus and have no theological have had no theological issues when they stand before him one day? Who will be perfect who will be perfectly theologically pure? In the day of Christ. Don't be too baptistic on me. Well, what about history? We've been divided for 400 years. Are we arrogant for considering unity? Is there something we're missing that they understood? Well, I read an article by another pastor whose church unified across baptism lines, and, and he wrote this. It's important for you to understand these things. He wrote this about the Second London Confession, which is what we call the London Baptist Confession, which is the confession that came after the Westminster Confession. And it came after the Westminster Confession because it was different on baptism. Okay, But it largely borrowed the Westminster Confession. And so the way we think about it is we think, well, the Westminster Divines and those in the um, Second London uh, Confession were, it was just an issue of baptism, and that was all that mattered, and they were like us, having a conversation. They just decided to disagree and go a different direction, but it, it isn't really that simple. Usually things we think are really simple just aren't. But he wrote this, speaking of the nature of rebaptism, meaning Baptist churches always wanting to rebaptize those who are baptized as infants. He wrote, while this may have been the case that some London Baptists were ardent defenders of rebaptism, while this may have been the case with some or many of the London particular Baptists, there was also, this is the part no one ever tells you. There was also a significant number who held to an open membership view and practice. London Baptists held to open membership. Who held to open membership allowed paido Baptist membership in their churches. My point being, the division hasn't always been what we thought it was. Here in 1807, a Scottish Baptist, a Baptist minister, James Haldane, says this. Let us, for instance, take the question of infant baptism. It is one which is highly important. But why may not those who differ on this point hold fellowship with one another? Why? I baptize my children. I do it to the Lord. I believe it to be His will. If I am wrong, I should be very happy to convince that I am so. I mean, isn't that amazing? This is an amazing thing that He's saying here. I should be very happy to convince that I am so. Another does not baptize his children. To the Lord, He does it not. I am also bound to believe that He wishes to walk in the path of duty, that He wishes to be convinced if He is wrong. In other things, we agree. We feel the same corruptions. We love and obey the same Savior. We're equally begotten to live a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ. But it seems we must not be members of the same church on earth. Surely, this is the spirit of error. This wisdom cometh not from above, Indeed, if a Pado Baptist and an Anti Pado Baptist cannot be members of the same church or sit down together at the Lord's table, they ought not to pray together. Fascinating. So, what could we do with all this? What is a starting point for what this could look like? Well, here's what I want to give you an example of what it would look like if we were to proceed with doing baptisms on both sides of the coin during worship, other churches who do do this will say something like this, okay? We are a church which affords to its members freedom of conscience on time and mode of baptism. The point being, we would cover this every time we do baptisms. We are a church which affords its members freedom of conscience on time and mode of baptism. What does that mean? Some of us are paedo-baptists. Pado-Baptists believe that Scripture teaches that Christian parents should have their infant children baptized since they're being born into a Christian family and should therefore receive the sign of God's covenant, baptism. Others of us are Credo-Baptists. Credo-Baptists believe that Scripture teaches that our children should only be baptized upon their own credible profession of faith. Disagreements on this issue have divided churches and denominations for centuries. But we are intentionally seeking to live at peace with one another by joining ourselves together in one body. We do still disagree on the particulars of how baptism is to be administered. However, we are able to have unity because we agree on some essential points. First, we all believe that baptism is commanded by the Lord and that it is an essential aspect of living an obedient Christian life. Second, we believe that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation in Jesus Christ. This faith is an inward working of the Holy Spirit and comes from God alone. It's not the physical act of baptism itself which brings into effect the working of the Holy Spirit. Third, we believe that God has promised to be a God not just to us, but to our children as well. God promises to take care of our children as we serve Him in faith, and God is pleased to work through families in making more disciples of His Son, Jesus. In the life of our church, you will see some families demonstrating their faith in the Lord and in His covenant by bringing their infant children to be baptized. At other times, some families will bring their children forward to be dedicated, believing that the sign of baptism is to be given only upon profession of faith. And you will see those children baptized as they grow up, and they themselves profess faith in the Lord. So that's an example of what it could look like when we do baptisms. Now... We have to be honest about the fact that this does raise, in trying to actually do unity on baptism, it actually does raise lots of practical you know, issues and questions to try to ensure that no one is a second-class citizen. In other words, to have genuine peace and not just tolerate each other. Even though we are bearing with one another in love, there are practical considerations to work through, and so um, we'll be thinking through those all the time. All the time. If our elders finally decide to do this, and uh, um, there will be a lot of those things to work out, and I just want to encourage you trust God. Just trust God. Trust us. Trust us. I trust that our work to you has actually been for your benefit over the years. Our desire is that this actually will continue in the same. It is, it is delicate. We recognize that it is delicate. But it doesn't mean just to keep things easier. We have to throw it out. There are ways forward. We do believe our work will promote genuine love and unity and peace. Honestly, I think it will just be very sweet. I think it will be very sweet. It might even have to make you obey God and bear with one another in love on something specific and regularly. And you know what? God would be pleased with that. And wouldn't it be a good thing to have to learn to bear with one another in love? Don't you think that actually would help your marriages and your parenting? I didn't get a lot of strong yeses there, but oh my, would it help your marriages and your parenting have to actually do something like this very precisely. So, we're glad to continue dialoguing for the next two months before we decide on the way forward. Our our concern is unity and peace and love on a nuance of difference regarding baptism. um, We have faith that there's ways forward for this. And we want you to have faith that there are ways forward for this and the practical realities that will arise. And uh, I, have, I am under no illusion. See how free this is when we can just entrust ourselves to God? I, have, I, am, I live under no illusion that we won't fail in the process of figuring it out. I just am under no illusion. But we have faith that we can figure it out. It's like, where in the world is the church that can understand that there's just failure everywhere all the time? So as far as division goes, we just want it to be a non-issue. We don't believe our identity as a church has to be found in the timing and mode of baptism, rather in the glories of the theology that built out of the fires of the Reformation. So thank you for these patient five weeks. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your debates. Um, If you're a credo-baptist, I would just say be strong in your position on baptism. No one's telling you to not be strong in your position on baptism. All we're telling you is you have to divide over it. And I don't believe you do, and we don't believe you do. So would you pray over these next couple months? Pray for Joel and Nancy and their family. We're going to miss them. Love you guys. We're going to miss them very much. And uh, um, and pray for your heart in relationship to Ephesians chapter 4. And you're going to think, here's the question you're going to think. You're going to try to escape Ephesians 4 like this. You're going to think, yeah, but that text doesn't actually have to apply to baptism because we can divide with charity uh, even a level of charity on baptism. And I think, I don't want to answer the question for you. I want the text to actually sit on you. I want it to sit on you because it just behooves me to think that any of us really, have felt the weight of Ephesians chapter 4 over us in serious consideration of how to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Stand with me for prayer. Father, thank You for Your words and how they bless Your people when they obey them. I pray that You would bless us as we obey them. I pray that we would heed Your words and take them very seriously with sober minds and that we would walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called to the Lord Jesus Christ, to Your kingdom and to Your ways, to Your commands, to be Your people, a people redeemed, elect before the foundation of the world, adopted into Your family, justified, by the work of Christ, given His righteousness and robed in them because of His work. We stand in great graces, Father, that we praise and give thanks to You for, and we pray that we would not waste them, that we would make them useful to be one people with one Lord and one baptism. Thank You, Jesus. In Your name. Amen.